0: Also, I am calling in everyone's bar taps. What? (laughs) No! Scott, this is nuts! Austerity doesn't work. Exactly. It's a Puritan wet
1: dream. Yeah, total wet dream.
0: Hello and welcome to Pod 49, a fan podcast about the AMC show Lodge 49. It's a discussion and recap show. It's unofficial, by the way, but it is made out of love and interest. This is our th- third episode, but our first recap episode starting with episode one of season two. If uh, you're still playing catch up and you want some of our thoughts on the entire season one, you can go back and listen to our first two episodes where we discuss all kinds of aspects of our impressions, our thoughts, our ideas on season one. Here, we're going to start recapping each individual episode. And I'm joined by my, I don't know, my co-knights, uh, my uh, co-brethren in the odd 49. Jim and Bart, how you doing today, guys? Great. Good. Very excited. All right. So we're going to jump into it. Just a little bit of background on this episode is, of course, the season premiere of episode one, season two, and it's called All Circles Vanish. It actually was written by show creator Jim Gavin. I don't, he doesn't write all the episodes, but this premiere for season two was written by Jim Gavin. It was directed by Jake Shearer, I think. Shearer? Sorry, Jake, if I get your name wrong. Jake's a Sh- Maybe pretty- Shrier. That's Shrier. what I guess. I don't know. All right. Yeah, Jake Schreier Jake yeah, Schreier I, I suck at announcing uh, pronouncing <laughs> Uh, so we're yeah, gonna go to Jim's pronunciation. And he's actually directed six episodes in total, two in season one and four in the season two. And some guest stars that we'll see at least for the first time are Bronson Pinchot. And of course, Paul Giamatti did voice work in season one, but we see him on screen here. And uh, we get voice work, but we don't see Cheech Marin, Cheech and Chong fame, another guest star. We're back in the thick of it. Season two has begun. What are your just quick impressions? What did you think about this first episode?
2: Uh, yeah, I thought it was great. I felt like it jumped us right back in. There was, um, you know, a couple moments of exposition. I thought that was pretty smooth. That kind of got us a little bit uh, caught up on some of the tie, tie-ins from last year. And I think they introduced a lot of new characters for the season that were pretty great. I really loved the scene of Daphne, the, the lawyer, donut shop, which I thought was particularly great. And of course, Instagram influencer family uh, that opened the pool (laughs) party uh, shop in Dudley and Son, old location, great addition as well. A little bit more of Herman, uh, which I liked um, and some great, you know, just some great stuff and really set it up. I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes.
1: Uh, We got some new directions for people. Shamrocks is closed and those guys from Shamrocks are going to be setting out on a new adventure. Dud is healed from a shark bite. That was good to see. Connie in London has, you know, a storyline to follow that, you know, we don't necessarily know where it's going yet, but... That's intriguing. New faces and seeing what the old characters are up to. I think it's a good start. Excited to see where it goes from here.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I felt right back into the world. Sometimes, you know, season twos are hard because, you know, you never know if you're getting a season two. So you kind of put all your big ideas into season one. You kind of, you know, shoot your load, so to speak. And so that's where a lot of shows stumble in season two. I can think of any number of shows where I was so excited for the first season and by episodes two or three of season two, I was like, what happened? And right away I felt, Right back in the world, I felt like I picked up right from season one. I agree, the exposition was was done well. I felt like we were kind of right back both into the vibe and the plot and the characters. So that was super, I was super relieved, maybe is the best word. And from a lot of the critical reaction for season two, and they generally, I think, have been serviced the first four episodes with uh, screeners, and they are off the charts positive. So, and that's not just reacting to one episode. So I think we're, I I think we are not in for the, uh, what do they call the sophomore slump. I think Lodge 49 is going to escape that. We're going to head to the part of the episodes here. We're going to call it the uh, Lodge meeting agenda, which is basically where we go through and recap the episodes. You can get to the major plot points and then we'll dive in and discuss things about that. We start in a really kind of crazy way. We, we start in some airplane. Paul Giamatti, who plays the writer, is there. We have Dud and Ernie. We have the corporate big head. Paul Giamatti thought he could fly the plane. Something happened. It's going down. Uh, he pulls a little bit of uh, celebrity culture and takes up basically the available parachutes. And we kind of end with a freak out of Ernie and uh, Dud going, you know, maybe going down in a, a, a blaze of fiery glory. But, interesting tidbit, they do have the scrolls. And then we get uh, six months earlier. So we sort of start right away with a cold open. That's a flash forward.
1: I think it's six weeks earlier.
0: Oh, is it six weeks? Okay. Yeah. Six weeks. That's a good correction. And then we kind of go from one almost hallucinatory scene to another as we get this roundabout, kind of in-the-round montage of of these kind of almost like American Museum of Natural History-style dioramas of different characters and different scenes from the show. There is symbolism galore. We'll dissect some of it. You could probably do hours of dissection. And I know on Reddit and some of our other friends out there probably are. So we'll weave that in and and continue to talk about that a little bit on Twitter and in the show. But there is so rich. The first question we had right off the bat is, we're not quite sure Whose dream, hallucination this is. Is it Duds in the hospital bed? Is it Connie who we'll see in just a few minutes? From there, we go, oh, also, this scene is set to broadcasts the Bee Colony, which Bart very astutely uh, noticed is also, there. you said the refrain is all circles vanish in the lyric. So the title comes from an, uh, a piece of this song. Then we go into, we got your first appearance of Liz, She's kind of looking kind of introspectively. She very kindly gives a homeless guy $3. Uh, Then she realizes that she needs it and has a hysterical scene where we have a real kind of look into Liz's psyche where she goes, uh, oh, I know I suck. Um, And then I love the homeless guy's Uh, line, it's taco time. Uh, A lot of Liz right there in about a a, a 45 second scene. Then we kind of check in with Dud, he's being visited by Blaze in the hospital. This scene has a ton of exposition, I think really excellently handled about what's been going on. Also has the great line, uh, the shark bite healed my snake bite. You start to see the beginning of a Blaze partnership here. From there, we check in on Ernie, so right away within the first couple opening scenes, we're checking in on our three main characters, Dud, Ernie, and Liz. We're into the plumbing office where uh, Bob Kruger, who is Brian Doyle Murray's character, is kind of doing a staff meeting where, of course, he's celebrating beautiful Jeff, who is now the cover boy for uh, the plumbing magazine called The Flow, which was a hysterical embedded joke there. Just a little bit of an aside, we're... I finished Middlemen by Jim Gavin. We're all going to read it and do a special pod on that. But there are parts of the plumbing story that are are almost directly some stuff from some of the short stories about the plumbing business in the book. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, But also we get the first really kind of sweet moment between Ernie and Bob, where, uh, you know, Ernie is basically admitting that, you know, he's kind of depressed. He's off his game and he gets a little bit of a pep talk where Bob is talking about, you got to find your fire. You got to find your passion And, of course, he says, my passion is poetry and has the classic line, I see poetry everywhere, which cracked me up every time I watched it. Then we get to Connie. She's still in London. She's waking up from one of her episodes. She's sort of being watched over by one of the lodge members. Um, This is where we kind of get this weird connection because we see a quick snippet of Connie kind of passed out around the time of the dream sequence. So here is her coming to. Liz being picking up Dud from the hospital. I loved this scene for one reason only is this was the quandary of the american uh, healthcare industry in one quick scene cuz liz of course is a hyperrealist is like dude how are we dealing with your bills and Doug is just like i just see an admin it's handled you know like it's just going to take care of itself and she's like okay and that that just felt like that felt like all of america's healthcare system in one conversation the next scene is Poor Scott being disappointed by Jocelyn that he is getting no grand tour. Of course, Ernie was preparing for that in season one, but instead he gets the fabulous consolation prize of the availability of a CD-ROM virtual tour uh, with that cutting edge technology, the CD-ROM. I have a lot to say about uh, the show's commentary on technology Mm -hmm. at some point in the show or in the future, but this is a funny little joke about that. And we really see who, who is the real leader, uh, the current leader, acting leader, managing leader of Lodge 49. And that is probably Jocelyn, not Scott. All right, Jim, I'm going to tag you out for the next section of the Lodge meeting agenda.
1: So we move on to Shamrocks, where Gerson is getting his evaluation from Jeremy, and he's wearing a suit. And Jeremy <laughs> says, you didn't have to wear a suit. And he says... Gerson says, exactly, because he likes to (laughs) surprise everybody. And all of a sudden there's rats everywhere and people are screaming. This is our just very quick way of of learning that the restaurant's going to be shut down. Champ has a couple of rats just kind of hanging out on him. And he says, the rat is the king of history. He always wins. And we move on to Dud and Liz. Now, last season, there were a lot of good scenes with them watching TV together on the couch, doing funny commentary about HG TV shows and whatnot. They're sitting there in their same positions, and then we see the TV's not there. Liz has pulled a Dud move and pawned it to, to uh, Bert at the pawn shop so that she could get money to eat. Dud and Liz are kind of back in their yin and yang dynamic. Dud feels like everything is great. And Liz is, you know, still in a place where she doesn't know where her life is going. And she's not very happy about where it is currently. Dud says there, the universe is good and I'm on the right path. And Liz says, what are you talking about He's much more optimistic, and she seems to be going downhill a bit. Then we go to Ernie. He's already been kind of down and disconnected. We've seen that he doesn't seem focused. And this scene, he's at home and he's looking at a picture of a younger him and a woman. We don't know who she is, we can speculate. He's already talked about taking wrong turn in life. We assume this is him thinking about what if uh, I had taken a different path with this person. So that, you know, we'll see where that goes. Uh, And then we have a sweet scene between Liz and Dud where Liz is in bed and Dud goes in to tell her that he's proud of her. He knows that she needs, if not a pep talk, at least just some some understanding and um, just to know that he's on her side. I think she appreciates... His attempt, but it, it seems like it doesn't necessarily help pick up her mood. And the next we see her, she is at Temp Joy interviewing to um, potentially get jobs there. And Ross, who's the Temp Joy guy, uh, he's always very understanding. Um, he, I think he's a great character. Having been someone who's who's been through temp agencies myself, sometimes the people you run up against there are not very personable and they aren't necessarily going to overlook your flaws and try to help you out no matter what, they might be focused on your flaws instead or reasons to reject you. And so I really like how that guy is just, you know, in, in, in this scene, he's, he's in a way a therapist. She's unloading all her, her problems on him. She says that her past jobs or career choices have been all just a zigzag to nowhere. And he's kind of like, Hey, we're going to do right by you. You know, we're going to find you something. Uh, Jeremy walks in. And they re- have a reunion. It's a very funny interaction between them where Jeremy says they need to talk about their affair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she forces him to dial that down. You know, they, he, he keeps trying to make it into something much more than it was. It really was just barely a kiss. And he's like, we, we, we made out. He gets her to almost admit that their lips did touch. Then we're in the lodge with Blaze and Dud. A key moment here. Blaze asks Dud to be his apprentice so he's going from squire to apprentice. Dud's very excited. Some things that that Blaze reveals here about Harwood Fritz Merrill wrote this book about how there's there's two map systems. Maybe one you guys remembers this better. It was there's there's the actual map of a city and where everything is, and then underneath that, people have their own map of of the way the world surprises you or what's mystical. The
0: mystical map. And he says a, he says a really interesting thing too. He says that. True alchemists actually know how to travel between those two worlds. Okay. So so it's almost like there's a little hint about we shouldn't take alchemy. We all, you know, we've always been told that we shouldn't take alchemy too seriously, that we're turning metal into gold, even though they are still trying to turn metal into gold. Um, so there is that kind of like get rich quick part of it, but that the true alchemists, true lodge are the people that can be in both places that can help others sort of between reality and and the deeper meaning. All
1: right, so in the next scene, Dud is back at the strip mall and he's hanging out in donuts, talking to Alice, and this woman comes in and says she's there to, to give him money. She's a lawyer. He's never met her Before she saw, you know, read about his his shark bite, and wants to represent him in a lawsuit. And he's saying, well, you know, what am I supposed to sue the ocean? (laughs) And she's kind of like, we will get somebody to pay, you know, whether it's the state or the County or, or what she's got this strategy where here's a guy who was wrong. So maybe we can figure out some way someone can be blamed and therefore
2: financially liable. He just kind of goes along. Like, yeah, she says, what if I told you that there was a shark overpopulation and the city knew about it and they were too cheap to do anything about it. And Dud says, really? And she says, "Yeah, that could definitely be true." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is one of my like, lines.
1: And then he takes this, this remote possibility of getting some money and immediately goes over to Bert and is like, "Bert, give me some. Money. <laughs> Let me borrow money against this future settlement that he probably will never get. But who knows? Who knows? We'll see what happens. Maybe he will." Over some ten percent. Oh God! Right, he's going to give him ten percent in addition to, uh, back to
2: the load It is at thirty percent. Right, 30%
0: of the $1,000 and then 10% on the eventual award. Okay, so a few more scenes for me here of the Lodge
1: meeting. So I really love this. Dunn and a few people are hanging out. Scott comes in and says, you know, I'm ringing the bell. Where is everybody? Jocelyn says, let's all start the meeting. Come on, come on, you knights and names. And then they get up and start going in. And and this look on Scott's face is just priceless. Like, ah, you know, damn it. Like, why aren't they not honoring my authority instead of this dude? which he's already had the conversation with Jocelyn about who's really in charge. What happens in there is that, you know, Scott asserts his new authority by telling everyone he's going to call in their bar tabs, which does not make anybody happy. There's the makings of a revolt there. Uh, Gil says to Jocelyn, did you approve this? Again, making Scott feel insecure in his position and his authority. They're all clearly disillusioned with, with Scott's leadership. Then we go back to Connie in London. She is in Lodge One, and she's in this archive looking through a device that spins around Um, We don't see what she's seeing. This woman comes in and says, that's an Orbiscope, which uh, made me immediately think of Orbis, I think intentionally. She describes to this woman, I think her name was Clara, that she feels like her brain is melting. Connie feels like her brain is melting. She's seeing things that aren't there. She doesn't know what to do. She has writer's block, wants to write about Long Beach. And this woman says, uh, I'd like you to, to talk to my boss, Melinda. I think maybe she can help you. And so Melinda, you know, we never saw in season one, but we heard her and we know that she, she's Jocelyn's boss. She's connected to what we Think is maybe the true lodge, whatever's under underground there in London, and to the secrets that ha, you know led them to keep Lodge 49 open instead of closing it due to the financial improprieties. To close out my portion here, we've got the people who own Pool Party coming into Donuts and trying to order lattes <laughs> and telling them that. They don't want their donut customers parking in front of pool party uh, and just generally making Bert and uh, is it Paul, the owner of donuts, Alice's dad realize just what complete assholes they are
0: with the prediction of from Bert about their mean. longevity. Right. They're not going to last long. Bart's going to take us through the last rundown of our Lodge meeting agenda.
2: All right. So then after that scene, we then we see Dud. He's on the the bench that's been dedicated to Larry Loomis and his memory uh, that was dedicated before he actually died. And he's on the phone. He's leaving a message for Ernie, wondering where he is He's taken three buses to get there, we find out later. And he's still sort of inquiring with uh, Ernie. Uh, He's not at the stage where he's angry yet. He still thinks that maybe he just hasn't gotten my messages but of course then the next scene we're cutting to uh is uh, ernie's in the in his car it's like that same spot where he think he hands herman some money at some point or something like that but it seems like it's the same spot that he goes to maybe just to sort of clear his head of course he's listening to that book on tape with giamatti's voiceover Um, he looks in his rearview mirror and he sees this uh donkey with the narwhal horn or unicorn, or I think it's- A unicorn my, horn, I think. Is it a unicorn horn? Is it? Yeah, is that, yeah, yeah, it's a unicorn I mean, horn. I just, I was assuming narwhal because it was in season one. To me, it just seemed, I thought he was like kind of mashing together uh, El Confidente and Captain. Sort of an interesting scene, I don't know where that's headed, or maybe it's just in a way of uh representing something that, uh, whatever's missing for- for Ernie to get him back on track, to get his fire going again. And then we see Liz at her dude temp job she comes in the office, she runs into somebody who's coming out of a door and thinks that might be the person she's supposed to look for, but then when she mentions Dr. Kimbrough he says like, you know, he kind of l- says, oh, you know, he's over there and kind of gives her the impression that uh, oh yeah, he, he certainly is a doctor. You know, makes some sort of joke about it. Of course uh, then enter Bronson Pinchot as uh, Dr. Kimbrough. You know, he seems to be on this cell phone Getting into an argument with his child, I suppose. He says, you know, telling him, you got to eat the pudding. You are the pudding. Or maybe it's his wife or ex wife or something. We're not really sure because then he gets a call in a little bit where he's very similar sort of dialogue that happens she mentions that uh, she was expecting it to be like a doctor's office and he says very quickly like I have a PhD of accounting and of course then he explains that she's gonna have to shred everything there he seems like a very paranoid person it's, it's good to see Liz's got a job it'll be interesting to see where that goes and then now we're back at the mini mall and Dud is trying to goes to the pool party tries to see if he can't join up with them a little bit I think he's trying to make some lemonade out of this you know obviously you know when he first sees it it's got to be a big kick in the Gut, but he's like, Oh, well, this is great. This is great, you know. That's the way Duds sort of attitude is towards everything. So he goes in and he tries to kind of. Say, so, you know, look, I, I can do this. I know all the pools. And they, of course, blow him off. And I think uh, the dad says something like, don't take this the wrong way, but you try to get a job here is sort of like if we opened a cruise line and the captain of the Titanic wanted a job, uh, which is very, very insulting. Obviously, the uh, son uh, was his name, Bowie. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. He's sort of Neanderthal-ish. You know, he doesn't really move much. He doesn't as Brows don't really move much. His face doesn't really move much. There's not a lot of expression going on. He's got Um, enough in him to be
0: incredibly misogynistic.
2: Yeah. That's about all he has, you know, um, i I love the
0: the only interaction you get from him is pushing a woman's head down to his crotch like that that that's the right. extent of his ability to
2: engage in any of
0: the scenes we've seen from him
2: but a very important part of that scene is that when they when he's about to leave, they hand him this box that's got a bunch of stuff that was left over in the office and they come across the v h s tape of their uh commercial for Dudley and Son, although it probably is before it's and son anyway, very charming video we see. Dud and Liz's mom, um, I, I was always under the impression that she had sort of died uh, much longer ago, or maybe they were very young when that was filmed. I mean, it's a VHS tape, so that makes me think it's a, like the 80s, but Liz and Dunn aren't quite that old. Anyway. The uh, timing of it doesn't isn't as important as I thought. It was just sort of nice because then you know Liz and Dud are doing what they like to do, which is watch TV together, and then they get to see this old footage of their parents. Uh, very sweet scene, and then uh, so then Dud heads to Ernie's house wants to kind of confront him face to face in that sort of confrontation, Ernie says a lot of things that don't really make a whole lot of sense to Dud. Obviously, Ernie's referring to what's been going on with him, his trip to Mexico. The overarching theme of Ernie being that he is wondering if he's on the right path or if he had done things a little bit differently. Would he be in a place that he doesn't currently regret? Then he heads back inside his house. There's a uh, voice message from his boss saying he needs to be there early. And then followed by a voice message from El Confidente saying that he's ditched him and he stole the Tiger Van. You know, we have some unfinished business. And then, of course, Ernie lifts up his shirt to reveal, takes off his shirt to reveal his tattoo, which looks like he decided to quit in the middle of. Looks like more like a just sort of a sketch on his body. It's uh, like, looks like a. Links of some sort that maybe was going to have like a human face on it or something with it's crawling over a snail, I guess. So, obviously, it seems like they were on their wild trip to Mexico somehow. They must have like gotten drunk and decided to get tattoos, and Ernie changed his mind in the middle of it or something. The Last scene is when Dud watches Bowie pull up, and the giant truck goes over, jumps into the truck at, at great pain on his leg, is obviously in bad shape, and um, decides to start stealing the pool supplies because he's going to start his own business of cleaning the pools. Herman pulls up in the thing, says, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm getting my life back together. So Herman decides to help him out. I, I you know, I really think that um, the whole community of people in the mini mall just know that this, this family has got to go. They're, they're not good for the, for their, you know, it's not good to have them in the group. They're just kind of awful people and um, some great music playing along the way as well. Uh, I love that song. Chris mentioned it was Lily's song there at the end. Really great. Really fitting. That's uh, how the episode ends. Some good little sort of cliffhangers uh, between Ernie's tattoo. What's going on with that? And, um, you know, what's going to happen with Dud? Is he going to start his own business? Is he going to get in trouble for stealing? Is he going to go back to court
0: all right, there was our uh, uh lodge meeting agenda rundown of the episode. Obviously, a lot happened. just kind of even watching the show a few times, thinking about it, collaborating on this on this rundown, hearing us do it there is so much to unpack. let's just start with what were some of the scenes and quotes that really you know kind of jumped out at you i, I going through these and kind of looking at them scene by scene. I find it even harder to pick. Pick one or one that was more important or that I liked more, etc. They really are so rich. There is so much to dissect in every one of these scenes. And I'm really kind of amazed at how much they were not only able to get you back into the vibe of the show, but also the world is so expansive even if it feels kind of haphazard it's definitely not the scene for me that i just loved was the the temp joy scene that starts off with with liz and jim what's the name of the temp joy agent ross ross who i agree i love he's empathetic i love when he says well that that kind of is my job and he just lets liz do her thing but we we learn more about liz in that 30 seconds of kind of monologue that she does about her backstory we obviously know a lot about her kind of current life in season one but like we get almost all of her backstory in that little monologue by her and that and i love the temp joy motto is it we're placing you where you need to be or something like that yeah find hysterical it's like up on the glass and so the scene would be amazing just ross and liz but then the jeremy showing up after the rat infestation at shamrocks they have this big reunion and jim you mentioned it in the in the rundown but Oh my gosh when when he says i i see how you're you're coming to grips with our affair uh, i laugh. that was there's many laugh out loud moments in the show but uh, that one hit me right in the funny bone and i just like guffawed
2: cuz just I really, I really love the way he uh, you know i think it's that uh, the temp joy office where they have the glass wall between the two offices yeah. which i think it's just funny in general, and I, I guess that actually exists somewhere wherever they found that to shoot. Um, but I love the way he kind of like goes up against the glass, he kind of looks almost like a kung fu panda, and he's like, in a, <laughs> like, like a, You know, and he's like, Liz, he's so generally happy to see, genuinely happy to see her, and um, just very good, uh, physical comedy there, I, I thought, by Jeremy. Yeah, he throws uh, his whole body at her essentially, like as if there was no other way, like he, like the glass was going to separate them forever or something, you know. You could, Like you can't figure out to go back out the door to see it, whatever. It was just really cute and charming and and great. I'm a sucker for physical comedy.
0: We talked about Jeremy a little bit in, uh, in one of our season one recap episodes, but his earnest, modern, sensitive man character is so brilliant. You get, and like, it just, he gets you right back into it. Uh, you know, like, when you're going to have to come to grips with this, you know, <laughs> like, it's, it's so, but, but you do find that, that you do have a sense of genuine warmth, but that's, that's two way, right, it's not just Jeremy to Liz, it, you feel it, Liz to Jeremy as well, Yeah,
2: platonic. Yeah, she doesn't, she's, she's, I, I do think Jeremy is attracted to her, and I don't think she's attracted to him. But I do think she does like him. Yes, definitely.
0: So that, I don't know. I I, I almost feel like I'm, I'm having an affair on all these other scenes by picking that one as one that really I just... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's the one I'm going to highlight, at least.
2: Yeah, I love uh, Ross when she's like, she's basically pitching to him about how terrible she is as an employee and that she doesn't really have any direction on all this kind of stuff. And then she says sort of, oh, you know, I, I guess this isn't really helping um, my case or something. And then he says, no, your, your feelings are actually in, lar- in line with a large part of the workforce. <laughs> 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 I love that line. And I thought it was uh, like very definitive of what the show is sort of all the economic angle from the whole show. Show is you know this idea that these that that people are sort of lost on their own. You're you know it's like a whirlwind in the capitalist structure of like I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't like the jobs that I can get. You know what what is the what what and what should I be doing? Where where am I going? That sort of like fear I think is very real and prevalent in that, actually, in, in real life. I, I don't know, I, I, I just thought that was a great line. That, and that's yeah. the thing, like, it has tons of characters, lots of minor characters, they all deliver, always have like these great lines, the writing is great. And we learned that
0: Dud is a model temp employee.
2: I also like that whole scene when um, Scott is up at the podium. It's not going very well. And of course, he's talking about how the lodge needs to, you know, make some money to keep it alive. And then mentions that he's going to close all beer tabs, you know, and, they, and that's when they all sort of like hit it. Like, this is, you know, ah, oh, what are you getting people walk out? They throw their cups down in disgrace. I don't know. This is very kind of a touching moment for me. I used to work at a bar that used to run tabs for people. Uh, It was a weird way of doing it. He would actually have you borrow money from the bar so that it was an even thing. So you borrowed, you'd get a 20 and then you were supposed to pay the 20 back and there was this like chip book. But anyway, yeah, that thing was, he was always, you know, under with it. You know, there was people who would, you know, borrow 140 bucks and then, up to 140 bucks or something, and then never, then never come back or not show up for like six months and that kind of thing happened all the time. So yeah, and those kinds of bar atmospheres, it's almost like the, the running the tab is sort of crucial to just even functioning, I suppose. But I love Big Ben Peters. Shouts out, austerity doesn't work. <laughs> and I love that like closing your beer tab is is, is the same as austerity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I very, I don't know. That was a great scene. Blaze calls it a puritanical wet dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scott is not... It's not off to a good start for Scott as Sovereign Protector. No.
1: The the scene when Dud shows off his shark bite, I thought that was... Pretty entertaining. Gil says, that looks like a goddamn dragon bite. And Dud says, dragon of the sea, man. <laughs> this kind of made me think about when we were talking in our previous episode about the uh, symbolism that we liked in the show. For me, the thing that came to mind first was the knight-squire dynamic and sort of everything that goes along with that. Um, some sort of you know medieval imagery. And one thing I didn't mention but thought about later was how Larry sees the oil pump as a dragon. He has a vision of the of, of the dragon next to his trailer that he lives in. And so then we have this, this back again here with you know, dragon talk calling to mind sort of medieval um, quest to, to slay a dragon and whatnot.
0: Yeah, the whole show is so funny. It's, I've seen some writers call it like a, a modern day fable. And if you really peel it back, the whole thing is this like kind of treatise on medieval quests and dragons and knights and squires and the different imagery people with powers and mysticism and uh you know kind of our liz and connie versions of witches you know in a a positive connotation you know like sorceresses there's so like there really is this like modern day fantasy epic aspect of it even though that seems totally weird
2: one of the things that we were sort of texting each other while we were all sort of watching it was uh whether or not that 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 sort of painkiller dream montage in the beginning that's like zoetrope sort of thing with the dioramas was was i mean it, it- it, when the scene starts, it's, he's Dud in his uh, hospital bed and does a close-up on him. And then, you know, he, he can see that he's kind of drugged up, I guess, he's probably on painkillers. And then it goes into this sort of dream. And then at the end of it, it's Connie waking up, which is usually typically when you see the person wake up, that's supposed to imply whose dream it was. But it starts off as if it was Dud's and then it finishes as if it was Connie's. So we were kind of trying to debate, we were debating whether or not it was Dud's or Connie's um, after first viewer, viewing of it. Yeah, I think we went, we kind of, of went back and forth and now I've sort of come around to the idea that I think it's actually not, I don't, I, it's not really important whose it is. It's, it's got things in it that Dud wouldn't know. It's got things in it that Connie wouldn't know. It doesn't seem like it could really be a real dream of either one of them, but I, I kind of ended up thinking that it was more of just sort of like a montage of foreshadowing for the new season, you know, so basically right at the beginning after that opening scene. And so it just sort of sets the tone of where, where, where the show is sort of headed this season. You know, that's, that's sort of what I thought about it, but what did, what did you guys think? Well,
0: one, it was just a visually amazing scene, right? So like before we like yeah. even connect what it might mean or who's having the visions or does it matter who's having the visions, any of those things, it, it almost, it almost makes me want to go and look at it like still by still and almost like look at each of those pieces. Cause it's, you know there's a raven in one I'm sure you could probably go by and find a rat if you looked at the one with with Champ and, and Gerson you know there, there's so much imagery overlaid and it's just also the spinning and all that it's just an amazing scene I feel like we could have probably filled an entire podcast talking about that scene
1: and some of it was the future with Gerson and Champ and Jeremy in, in, in some kind of workplace that they certainly haven't been in up to that point and neither Connie nor Dud really know those guys especially well except for Dud having worked with Champ as you know security guards at Orbis. Another thing was in the you see a uh a plane on fire heading down, like like the plane they're on in the beginning. I assume that was reference to that. That's in one of the panels behind. Wow, Bernie, I didn't I even think. notice that. So it's sort of like future visions, maybe that would imply it's what Connie was talking about, seeing yeah, that's when things.
2: I, the plane going down in flames was when I was like, Oh, I guess this is. You know, sort of like a foreshadowing for the for the coming season, sort of thing. Because obviously, this is six weeks earlier. We're back, Duda is in the hospital.
0: All right. Well, we know we have at least a few listeners out there, judging from uh, the analytics on our first two episodes. So, we would definitely love help breaking down this episode. If you're seeing things, making connections, images, you know, you can find us at the Pod Forty Nine on Twitter. We'd love to get some of your ideas about. That scene, another scene that really affected me was that first Dud and Liz on the couch where they're they're not watching watching TV because she's had to sell it for grocery money, and you get this. I think uh, Jim, you called it the yin and the yang. Liz is such a pessimist, and Dud is such an optimist. Both of them to their detriment in their extremes. You see the danger of those kind of like extremist worldviews because Liz can't even accept her wins, right? I.e. getting out of the debt, having a fresh start, the fact that Dud didn't die and she's not alone. Like there's no way for her to even be positive about what is good in her life, even if she brings you know, realism to it, which is healthy. And then Dud is so positive that he's clueless, right? He's just like hyper naive. And so sitting there on the couch and like almost this like, Obviously there's a lot of love for each other, but there's a a battle of these kind of worldviews that takes place in that couch. And, you know, I, I always, I mean, Voltaire's Candide is, I don't know, maybe my favorite book of all time at this point. It reminded me of like like Pangloss and the best of all worlds and all of the kind of like these characters who embody these extremism of and ridiculousness of philosophy and just continue to espouse it regardless of what is happening and what the reality is in the world around them. But I, I was just like, wow, that they they are so locked in their worldview that they're cages and and that that scene, like, summed that up to me. Because they couldn't, and even when he goes into her room a few minutes later and tries to connect with her, they can't connect. That Like, their cages of their worldviews is actually not allowing them to actually benefit from each other's company.
2: The funny thing, when Liz is chasing down the homeless man she gave $3 to to get it back, you know, I just sort of was thinking, like, Liz, Liz, you know, there, there's ATMs everywhere. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, I guess she's unemployed, so maybe she just doesn't have the money anywhere in any kind of bank account, but... um yeah, yeah she, she had to she, pawn the TV. Yeah, she did have to pawn the TV. But, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But she is sort of so stuck in the way she thinks that, I, yeah, to her own detriment, I think. But, um, yeah, she. I really saw a connection between Liz and Ernie, the way that they have the sort of pessimism versus Dud's optimism and how, in a way... Both of them can get kind of frustrated with Dud. If you're like a very much a realist, then people who are dreamers can just sort of, just can kind of get on your nerves, I think a little bit. Dud and Blaze, on the other hand, where they are both very optimistic. I mean, naive, even, you know, we had in season one, Blaze was very much so enamored with the con man that he couldn't even see it. Somebody that was listening to him that believed in him. You know, and he does have these fears he, he mentioned in, in in season one about, you know, sort of being a phony or chasing something that doesn't exist. And, uh, you know, he has these moments of doubt and stuff, but he's ultimately a very optimistic person. And they, you know, so he and Dud have this enthusiasm for checking out, um, are going looking deeper into the books and alchemy and the scrolls. In a way, Blaze and Dud have kind of they've they they have their fire.
0: Why don't you tell us what do you, what did we decide was the driving theme of this episode and quite possibly the rest of the season.
2: Yeah, I think it's, you know, you gotta get your fire back. I mean, that's what um, Blaze says at the hospital. Then uh, Brian Doyle Murray says something very similar to it. Um, I think Ernie might've mentioned something about not uh, having lost it. He's lost something in his life that he doesn't think he'll get back. So yeah, it kind of ties back into Duende, you know, that's what Captain called it. And that's what he was trying to get back by hanging out with the guys at the lodge. And that's, you know, to me, it seems like, uh, you know, it's about rebirth not to be too personal about it, but I've definitely gone through some moments where over the years of owning a small business where things look very dire financially and I've noticed that I, I, I lose my humor because I typically like to jo- kind of joke around and laugh at things and it's, it's, sometimes it feels like that's a luxury to be able to sort of have your own humor inside of you um, and certainly financial stress is, is one of the worst stresses there are but I've noticed that before that I, I go through these periods where I sort of lose my humor, and I feel like Ernie's kind of there, Liz is kind of there. I, obviously, we're hoping for a rebound for everybody. I know. For me, you know, I've gone through patches and then I kind of get it back. Right now I have humor, I would say. I have my duende. But yeah, that's, to me, seems to be kind of like a real overarching thing, you know, like the yin and yang of uh, Dud and Liz, you know, the sort of like the continuity of life. Everything kind of starts from their dad dying. That's when they lose the business, they lose the house. That's what puts them in this whole position, which is why, you know, which, which comes right, right on the heels, uh, no pun intended, of his snake bite. And yeah, and they hit this terrible spiral. And now they're kind of climbing out of it.
0: I'd even argue that Connie is in a similar position. Gott is in a similar position. And even the Lodge itself, and even this idea of the true Lodge, right? Like getting back to why it matters. So yeah, I I love that. I think Duende is the perfect, you know, we have all kinds of, whether it's Brian Doyle Murray's Bob character is a bit of an Oracle. Blaze is a bit of an Oracle. You get these kind of characters that kind of signposts, even Captain last season that you have to find it. But like recapturing the duende is, is just a, a super interesting way to, to think about that.
2: Yeah. And I also think Scott is maybe on the beginning of a downward spiral. I mean, not that things were totally great for him last season, but now that he's he sort of usurped the throne from Ernie and now he's realizing that it's not all what it was, what he thought it was cracked out to be. You know, he's not getting the grand tour and he is also not very well liked at the moment.
1: Can we tr- transition here into our discussion of what, what characters made gold?
2: Sure, yeah. We want to
0: name our alchemist of the episode who turned as, as much stuff into gold as possible.
1: And uh, mine is Connie. For me, even though, you know, Connie's obviously going through some difficult health issues and she's far from home and she's got writer's block, the one thing that happened for her is that she got closer to the mysteries and secrets of the Lodge than anybody else. We see her the last time we see her in this episode, she's got the blindfold on and she's heading down the hall to Melinda's office. Melinda represents this uh, extra level of, of knowledge of the Shoe Lodge and, you know, maybe some of the other mysteries. You know, back in Long Beach, we have got Blaze and Dud doing their research and speculation and trying to figure out what's going on in terms of the alchemy and and, and the objects that Blaze has found. Meanwhile, she's gotten much closer than they have.
0: I love your nominee, Jim, because she's also, she might not know it yet, but she's also kind of finding her duende, right? She's like, she's an investigative journalist. She's on a case, She's on this quest. She is struggling, but you can see like the path for her duende kind of emerging for her.
2: You know, in a, in a way, maybe a lot of her problem was this sort of um, back and forth between er- er- Ernie and Scott and the deception involved and those kinds of things. Like, uh, cause she's deceiving Scott, but she's also deceiving Ernie because she hasn't she doesn't explained to him what's going on with her, with her head issues and whether it's like, I mean, it seems like she might not have much longer to live even that's like, they kind of hint yeah, at that as well. She made, she made a, a reference to that. To that yeah the deadline yeah. quote unquote yeah and so yeah she maybe it seemed like she needed to break out of you know the, the rut she was sort of in and 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 the way to do that was to just leave the whole thing i guess and and head to another country
0: so know? chris uh tell us who your alchemist of the week was my alchemist of the week is it's kind of obvious and on the nose, but I definitely think it was Dud. I mean, Dud is the kind of Candide character here, you know, the kind of like lovable, hapless, half-wit who's like kind of stumbling through this, but is probably also like magically touched. And he see he has broke through to the other side, right? Like he he did survive. He has this, you know, sometimes there's detriment but this positive worldview. He has this great moment where Blaze kind of like, after his kind of, you know, kind of being dragged into Liz's pessimism, Blaze kind of pulls him out of it by inviting him to be the apprentice and kind of bringing him in on these secrets. And that kind of re energizes him a little bit. He has this really like, you know, puppy dog reaction to, you know, he's being ignored by Ernie. So there's that moment. And this idea that they're all, you know, the, the, the finding your fire, the Duende, the exultant moment where he steals the pool equipment and jumps in his chariot with his driver is him finding his Duende. He tells Blaze earlier in the episode if he could be doing anything, he'd be cleaning pools. And so, you know, he's got his he's got his tools back, you know. So, like, uh, and that the, they're a metaphor for for and an, an a needed aspect of him doing what he wants to do and like kind of re-reemerging. So I think. You know, and he also is the common thread that starts to pull all these characters together, and probably what you know, there's all these implications that he's somehow connected to the True Lodge, et cetera, et cetera. I think even in the in the season preview that runs at the end of the episode, El Confidente, Cheech says, I've been dreaming about you. And Larry says similar things. So I don't, he's my alchemist of the week.
2: Uh, yeah, mine, I'm going to take it uh, a sort of the other way where it, the, the danger of, of alchemy maybe like a sort of by in the sense of like opening Pandora's box. You know, Scott has taken over Sovereign Protector and the first thing he wants to try to do is get the lodge to be financially solvent and uh, so he proposes these different things it's, we're gonna require more volunteer time. We're going to rent the place out. We're going to need people to kind of babysit the place. So we're going to need more. So he's kind of, you know, we're going to need more sacrifices from all of you. And of course, then he proposes that he's going to um, shut everybody's beer tabs. I know I'm just, I keep uh, harping on this to some degree, probably because of my bartender past. Yeah, he's going to, he wants to collect on all the bar tabs and the, and the kind of thing that it, it all sort of blows up in his face. I mean, I'm sure he knows that it's not going to go over well, but yeah, it sort of backfires in his face when he's trying to create gold out of something that's not there, uh, which is these people who have all just lost their jobs, and the one place they love in the world is the lodge, and of course, drinking a few pints and doing some karaoke of uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival or something, and um, so now he's kind of taking that away from them, because obviously, I think if they have to settle their bar tabs, a lot of them will probably not come to the lodge until they can afford it, which may be a while or never
0: close to wrapping up here we've talked about a lot of stuff on the show there's so much to unpack i'm sure many of you are on the reddit threads and on twitter if you've got any anything that we missed or even thoughts about what we said please give us a tweet at the pod 49 we'd love to hear some of your theories as well we're just three people here talking about this but we know there's a plethora of things to unpack and we do hope to be start having guests actors creators people involved with the show um we're crossing our fingers we're working on that so an added feature of the show going forward will probably be hopefully be interviews with with the creative talent behind this amazing show until then we will see you uh next week at band night